Hello, welcome to Hampshire Fans Podcast. This is Ian Pierce. I'm back. I think it's been about 18 months at least since I recorded anything new. Um, and with the season that Hampshire have had, 2021, it seems rightly appropriate that this is a good moment to resurrect things and look back at what the season was. Ultimately, it was a season where we didn't win anything, but um, it's one we'll think about for a long time. I've got with me two new guests that are going to hopefully help me out and give us some more regular content. So you've got something more regular to keep you going through the winter. And we've got Amanda and Hi. George. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Amanda. Okay, so those who have followed me on Twitter for a while will know that I'm sort of a 40-something Hampshire fan. I live up in uh, Berkshire these days, but uh, I get down to the Aegeus Bowl as much as I can and travel around to away trips. Uh, first supported Hampshire, first remember watching Hampshire as far back as 1988 uh, when they won the B&H Cup and uh, living in Hampshire, that was the natural team to support. George, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how long you've supported Hampshire for, please? Yeah, of course. Um, hello, everyone. My name's George. I've been one of the biggest Hampshire fans since I was about four or five. My earliest memory was the C&G trophy win in 2005, which I'm sure is a lot later on than your memories of both of you. But um, uh, it was Hampshire's just been a massive part of my life for the last two decades. And um, especially I've been through some rough things in the last few years. And really, my love for Hampshire has got me through that. So, yeah, it's been a massive, massive thing for me. And it's my greatest passion is my cricket. So I love being a Hampshire fan. It's an honour to be on the pod. Thank you very much. Glad to have you with us. Amanda, do you want to tell us about yourself, please? Yeah, hi, I'm Amanda. I'm of indeterminate age, but I was at that CNG final at Lords uh, in 2005. Yeah, Ashes year, but that was my highlight being there for Hampshire winning. So I have followed Hampshire for, I don't know, I didn't think it was that long, but I do remember being at the last May's Bounty match in Basingstoke. Uh, where Hampshire played Yorkshire. So I live in Basingstoke. So I must have been following Hampshire for quite a while, uh, watching a lot of the matches. Uh, my sort of way into cricket was through England years ago. But if I had to make a choice, it would be watching Hampshire, I think, because I love it. And I've been a member for about five or six years, I think. So yeah, interesting. Membership's hard when you're of working age and <laughs> matches don't happen at the weekends. <laughs> So sort the schedules out, people. Yeah, they do need to do that. I mean, I was lucky enough. I've been a member about eight years. And uh, when I was first a member, it sort of coincided with a very, very flexible job where I could kind of go all the time. But in the last few years, I've kind of favoured career progression over watching cricket. So I've had to cut back a bit in, in the amount I attend. And uh, I'm from... Basingstoke way as well so it's interesting that we may well have been at quite a few of the same games because that was where I first watched Hampshire um, back in the 90s mainly um, but I went to some of the games when they returned to Basingstoke. Yeah. Okay so the main reason for the podcast today is to look back at the 2021 season and what a season it was. Ultimately empty-handed but how many amazing moments were there along the way? It was insane, yeah. wasn't it? It was so good. It was. So do we want to go through and um, each of you summarise what your favourite moment or best moment of the season was for you? Well, I guess I would have, if somebody had told me at the start of the season that we would have nearly won the championship by one flipping wicket and <laughs> we would have been at finals day and oh what a surprise we didn't win at finals day but if somebody had told me that at the beginning I would have taken it absolutely I would have mm -hmm. taken it but it just felt awful <laughs> it just yeah can't describe the pain and Ian will tell us about his pain because I <laughs> saw him at finals day <laughs> um I had to console myself um at the beach area around the back with a pint um during the second semi-final. Um, but yeah, what 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 an amazing season. Ridiculous, bonkers, nuts. Uh, just demonstrates why we love cricket, why it's so mad. Um, 
it just makes fools of everybody. You know, I mean, again, Ian, you were at that Liverpool match, but yeah, that, that was yeah. just that was just like mad. Oh, it was. Yeah, absolutely. It's just again, it's like we think from where we were in July, and I was just getting mentions every day on the Twitter, just going, "Oh, the club is a disgrace. It's a shambles." <laughs> you know, just hand the keys over to Southern Brave and walk out the door and sack everyone and mm. we at, at the time things weren't going brilliantly of course they weren't but they were never as bad as some of the people that were tweeting me were were talking about but nobody could have expected what came next but no. out of what you were saying Amanda what what's what was the best moment though I don't know the best moment that I I don't know because the best moment that I witnessed I I don't know I guess Liverpool were just just that crazy crazy final afternoon where you know Mason Crane came on to bowl and it's just the hope isn't it the hope of what might be and the the kind of the feeling that that you know how it's going to go but then there's a run out really <laughs> what's that all about and then you know Mason Crane takes a couple of wickets and you know I love the um, BBC commentary and Kevin James was just like beside himself and him and Scott Reed were having such an amazing time. And poor KJ got really emotional at the end of that match. Um, you know, when he was like signing off, he sounded quite choked up because it was just mm. bonkers. <laughs> oh, you know. I easily could have shed tears when I was there and speaking to people. And um, yeah. Lewis Coombs of South Today grabbed me and he said, I'll have, have a word with you. And I was like, Obviously, um, cut loads out from the 30 seconds he spoke to me, but I was just like, I don't know what to say, which I realise is absolutely no good for a TV interview. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't know how I quite managed to to hold it back. And then I was talking to the various other supporters that had travelled up to watch, and we were talking, some of them were a fair bit older, and the odd one could just about remember 1973 when they last won the championship. <laughs> And they were talking about all the occasions when they'd come second since. So I think there was about three, four times and come second. And the last time they came second was 2005, but it was like all decided with a couple of games to go. So it was a season where you can feel pleased you came second, but you weren't really <laughs> thinking what if. Whereas this time there were three major things that struck me on that afternoon because I was looking back at few Twitter messages, a few WhatsApp messages I sent on that afternoon. It was, unfortunately, Bradwell dropped a catch at 30-odd mm. when Alex Davis was playing a bit of a blinder. Mm. There was, yeah, Mason Crane not coming on to bowl until, what, 110 for two, something like that. Mm. And that, it's easy to say, but you kind of think, well, he, he really should have come on earlier. I know there wasn't, a huge amount of runs to play with, but that seemed a bit of an oversight from where I was. And the third thing is I heard about 150, 160 runs on the board. Dane Villas, there was a huge, huge LBW shout that I'm sure on another day, somebody would have stuck their finger up and said, yeah, that's out. It's those three things that really stick in my mind. That if they'd gone slight, if they'd gone the other way or been done differently, mm. then we'd be doing a title celebration podcast now and not a, a runners up. Well, in a funny sort of way. We weren't even fourth. runners up. Yeah, we weren't even runners oh, yeah. up. Yeah, <laughs> fourth with the bizarre way that the the points went. Yeah, it's an incredible season. What highlights or what was your favourite moment, George? Well, firstly, I just completely echo both your sentiments. It was the most incredible season and Hampshire wouldn't be Hampshire without putting us all through a roller coaster, uh, I think is quite true. Um, for me, I could easily choose the same moment, but I'll choose a different one, which really stuck in my mind because I was there. I went up to Trent Bridge for the T20 quarterfinal and my God, oh, what I experienced, I was in tears at the end. I just thought that's one of the greatest sporting moments I've ever witnessed and I've been lucky to been quite a good few cricketing moments in my short life but that was unreal um what it proved to me I think was how we as a club more than most I think have a real never say die attitude and you never count Hampshire out because you just never know when we're out of it until right at the minute and the last minute and it was incredible 
um, the fight from the guys, uh, how some of the youngsters like Tom Prest, mm. people were looking at the team sheet and thinking, oh, is this a little bit too much pressure? Actually, we owe him finals day almost mm. because he rebuilt that mm. innings and played with such timing, temperament, you know, wise beyond his years. And it was just, I was luckily in, in the, the Radcliffe Road end, full of not supporters, but I happened to be sat next to five Hampshire members, complete luck. And oh my God, I think everyone was a bit annoyed with us at the end. <laughs> such noise and such a racket, but one of the greatest sporting experiences of my life. And it was just a privilege to witness it and reaffirmed why we love this crazy club, I think. Yeah. I mean, I was watching on TV that night. And again, in preparation for this, I sort of looked back at the tweets I sent that night and there was like, oh, well, this isn't very good. Oh, well, not sir in control. I think, well, they were 80 for one, something yeah. like that. And it's, yeah, we're only defending 125. Yeah. And then it was also a bit weird where it was similar to finals day where we seemed to have it won. You know, they were 90 for eight or something like that. And then suddenly they got 10 away or whatever mm-hmm. it was because it was the big guy, Carter, just started punting it into every stand. Yeah, in yeah. the penultimate. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you're thinking, oh, no, we've kind of thrown this away when we were so far ahead. And then suddenly... I think what helped was obviously Brad Will for the 20th over had number 11 on strike. Yeah, mm. I heart Brad Will. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and the, I think we'll talk more about him later for various reasons. But yeah, he, he had the number 11 on strike and was able to close it out. Yeah. And, and he really uh, cried, didn't he? Was it... Um, I forget which I forget who it was now. Uh, the number eleven was it their cold pack player, but he looked like he was about to cry. Yeah, it could be overseas. It's overseas, sorry. Yeah. There's no such thing as cold pack, is there? No, um, anymore. But um, you know what I mean. But I uh, think he was going to cry because um, as the over progressed, like ball one, ball two, he just couldn't get it away. And exactly. Yeah. I was on a I was on a WhatsApp chat to my friends and uh, or video call, and I had that on in the background and I'd, I'd been walking the dog and I came in at half time thinking, well, that's not enough, is it? We've screwed this one up, mm. but didn't tweet it. Cause I'm not like that. <laughs> Cause <laughs> I'm not seeing my frustrations about our batting. Cause it makes me look really sour. So um, I was on a video chat and I was like, yeah, no, sorry, sorry. And I flipped the phone rounds. Um, Cause my friend's a cricket fan as well. And we were just, I can't stop this conversation now. I actually have to carry on talking to you because it's obviously the way we're going to win this match is for us to carry on talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my I friend mean, witnessed it on WhatsApp as well. Oh, it's like, what yeah, was I was I was on a work call. I was working that night, but I'm fortunate enough that I can just have the TV on and I'm on a work call. I was basically talking my work colleagues. Mm. And we have some guys that I work with in Bulgaria, some guys I work with in New Jersey so their cricket knowledge is a little bit limited (laughs) and I'm absolutely like I'm not quite giving up on this game but it's not going how we want it and then I'm like high as a kite because yes this is this is basically in the bag we're going to finals day and then like every time the ball disappeared I'm like hang on get worried about this now and then finally, yes, when uh, <laughs> throws up the ball at the at the end, and that it looked great scenes at Trent Bridge. I mean, I went there in 2014 when we won a quarter final, and that was a great Hampshire victory. But the one you saw, George, is um, the stuff of legend. Oh yeah, yeah it, that will that will stay with me forever, I think. Um, and and one yeah. of those I was there moments. So it was it was brilliant. And to, I saw sort of WhatsApp group with a couple of Hampshire fans, and they all saying, "Oh, we're hiding behind the sofa and all that." And I thought you're so lucky because I had nowhere to hide. <laughs> <laughs> and for half of that game, I thought I'm going to be going home six hour journey empty handed. But oh, yeah. it was it was unreal. And I wouldn't have changed the thing actually. It, we we executed it and and they did it and they kept the belief and wow yeah. amazing. I mean it's yeah. classic Hampshire that when we had that sort of real success ten years ago, it was often on defending below par totals and that's well that's what I spent we came yeah. back this year didn't it that we've yeah. had a few in different years of T twenty but that sort of kind of formula really came back this year and that was kind of what really helped our resurgence there. Mm. 
I spent half a finals day, I think, saying to everybody, well, I've seen Hampshire defend like 98. <laughs> yeah, you know, what, and everybody kept saying, what score do you think is enough? I said, well, you know, I, you know, when, you, when we're like 50 for five or whatever it was. So you just, you know, you just yeah. said, I've seen us defend under 100. It's no problem. Exactly. And finals day felt like, yeah, we got something to bowl at. And it was just one of those things where, I just wonder if it was not a luck running out, but it was just one of those things that when you have so many tight finishes that mm. perhaps one is going to go against you eventually. And it mm. kind of gave, it went against us on the wrong day. But what I also tweeted about, I think the day after was that if Hampshire had managed to win finals day, they'd have had to do it winning eight or nine games in a row. Yeah. And how difficult is that to do? Not even the best team in the IPL can manage that. Hmm. That's exactly. what a run it would have taken to win the trophy. So the thing that I think made me feel a little bit better about the finals day, apart from the cider and the wine and the gin buckets that I consumed, was the um, the fact that all the innings bar the final um, actually followed the same kind of pattern. Mm. They did. So it was obviously something to do about conditions and the and the balls as well. This year have been really weird as well, haven't they? The, the red balls um, have all needed changing about ten times per innings, you know. And the so I think that there was something about the conditions on finals day which meant that actually our innings was quite good in the grand scheme of things. It's just well, I think I just thought about you know my sort of worst moment of the season was that just that Chris Wood over mm. that he bowled. I mean, I'm not pointing the finger of blame at him because you know you're a death bowler and these things happen but you know it's when we you see the writing on the wall when they're casting it about and you think oh okay maybe we haven't got this then after thinking for about every other over <laughs> that we maybe we have <laughs> yeah would you go along for worst moment with that George or are you that that was that was my worst moment as well I was I was there alongside you guys as well and I witnessed that in the flesh and um yeah crushing <laughs> crushing Raymond <laughs> And the worst thing for me was I was sat in the bloody Sussex stand. So okay, <laughs> so that that was that was the worst thing for me. And uh, everyone they didn't quite like us as much as other counties did that day. Mm. So they were all laughing at me. So I found it a bit difficult. But uh, I felt sorry for Chris Wood because that nearly happened in in the Knots game. Mm. Um, Carter yeah. attacked him, took him to the cleaners, but. Uh, He's, I, I don't think it was him. I think anyone that they were going to just attack it. And we saw as the day progressed, as, a, as Amanda said, that actually batsmen and tail enders were able to attack the ball a lot easier in those conditions. Mm. So I just think it was what it was. But then again, you could argue we, we should have lost that game after the opening power play anyway. So the fact that we got back into it, but then we were so close. It's, it's such a game of fine margins. But then... We some people argue we didn't have a right to even get to finals day, mm. you know, winning those five on the bounce and yeah, I mean, even chasing 180 plus under 13 overs in that Glamorgan game when we needed to get it in, in just uh, just under that was incredible. And the fact they're even there that's what consoled me at the end. I thought, no, you've got to have some perspective and think we're lucky to be here because we played so well. Um, mm. and not a lot of clubs could have gone on the run that we did. I was at Hove right at the start of the competition and saw us sort of capitulate. And if you had told me we got to finals day, I would have laughed and said, You've had a few too many ciders, I think. So <laughs> I, I was pleased with that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I bought my finals day ticket um, in the deep despair of lockdown number two, I think, in November, December, thinking, oh, well, if I'm still alive and if the world's still going, I'll be at, I'll be at my first finals day. Um, oh, and the fact that I, wow. you know, Yeah, it was my first finals day. So oh, the fact that we were there, and, and I was going to be in the Hollis stand, but I'm really glad I wasn't and that I was in the Hampshire with my people. Um, in the Hampshire stands because it was it was a much more enjoyable day um, being with my people. But I did miss the second semi-final because I say I was drowning my sorrows. But yeah, I, came back. I, I was watching it, but I was in such a bad mood. Yeah. And again, it's like I know Somerset fans and no, I, I have an irrational dislike of them and yeah. I just don't enjoy losing to them at all. And yeah, uh, yeah it was just an awful, awful moment. But I had an, another awful, awful moment five days later. That <laughs> my two worst experiences supporting Hampshire happened to come in five days of each other. Feels oh, I'm really sorry for your very, loss. Very, very cruel. Yeah, 
And it would just made me think about all the sort of close finishes Hampshire had had in finals. So like 2012 final, where he won last ball against Warwickshire. Mm-hmm. And we with loads of Warwickshire fans and how they must have felt. But at the same time, they, they've won loads of stuff. They've won the county championship this year, of course, which I really, 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 really want to win. You know, yeah. it's the main thing. I've been lucky enough to go abroad on test tours and saw England mm-hmm. win the Ashes in Australia and um, Hampshire win one-day finals, T20 finals. But to feel like cricket's complete, it needs me to be there to see Hampshire win the championship. And yeah. yeah. We've talked about it already, but it's just, yeah, it was just absolutely crushing to have got so close. I don't know if we'll get, I'm sure one day we will get another chance, but it's one of those where the way the structure's going, if they do the same structure they have this year, then would you necessarily get yourself into that top one as well? So that's good. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really, it's really hard, isn't it? And the I mean the balance between you know kind of seeing all different forms of cricket and England as well I mean I've been lucky enough as well to see England's abroad in some really nice locations and seen England even win abroad uh twice so I've been really fortunate but um I remember being at the Aegis Bowl in 2015 and it was on, I think it was the Saturday of when we won the Ashes Test at Trent Bridge. It would have been like Stuart Broad's seven for nothing. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I remember being at the Aegis Bowl, listening to my radio, listening to us winning the Ashes Test, but being a Hampshire game, thinking that's the right balance, actually. (laughs) I want England to win and I want England to do well, but I actually really want Hampshire to do well. (laughs) actually really want to see Hampshire do well. I think we're all sort of county above country by the talking to you in just this short space of time. I'm most certainly like that. Like a few years ago, there was a test at the Aegeus England play in India and I was off to Chelmsford to watch Hampshire play Essex on the same day, whereas it seemed everyone (laughs) I knew that normally Hampshire games would be was at the test match is fair enough yeah I was at the I was at the test match sorry but with my friends that I met in Australia so you know yeah. my Eng, my English friends that I met in Australia so you know it yeah I get that and I was following the game I was you trying didn't. to but the wi-fi kept crashing yeah you didn't miss anything it was a dreadful day <laughs> at Chelmsford to be honest so you didn't miss out anything there <laughs> So if we if we're thinking about the players who stood out this season, sort of divide it up into red ball and white ball because obviously you've got fairly different squads. You've of course got people who play both formats, but uh, some that only play one. If if we're talking red ball, who would be your player of the season? Mm, that's really hard. Um, I mean, obviously the the club award has gone to James Vince. Well, for batter. In terms of overall player, obviously it went to Keith Barker, didn't it? It's really hard. Player to player. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really hard because I love Kyle Abbott, really love Kyle Abbott. And, you know, he got a load of wickets and he was really unlucky, you know, to miss out the last couple of games to injury. And it's not just about your average, is it? And your how many wickets you take. It's all the other stuff you do as Mm. well. overall sort of contribution it's like your assist if you like I'm not sure how you measure that and you know what you do for your junior bowlers and your coaching and your mentoring kind of thing so I just want to give a shout out to Kyle Abbott because I love him <laughs> Fair enough. yeah that's a good choice and when I thought about it I think there was about three or four people that were serious contenders in my eyes my own choice would be Keith Barker I think for all-round mm. contribution that's yeah, uh, regularly got us out of trouble with the bats, you know, vital mm. tail, tail end runs and um, his bowling, because he's the left armour, he gives us that extra dimension. Mm. And it was his footmarks, if you like, at Liverpool, for example, that Mason Crane was working with. So mm. Pete Barker would be my choice, but I'd also give honourable mentions to James Vince. I'd also mm. give honourable mentions to Mohamed Abbas. Brad Will, I think, has had a really good breakthrough year on um, Red Bull. He used to be what I felt was quite an unlucky bowler. Seemed to have a lot mm. of catches dropped off him. 
and he's had his injury problems. Whereas this year, I felt yeah. it was a real breakthrough season for him. But I think Keith Barker has to have it for me. I was, he was somebody I was really excited and really pleased when we got him from Warwickshire a few years ago. And he's turned out to be even better than I hoped he would be. I knew we were getting a really good, solid professional, but he's a, he's a really, really good performer. George, what's yeah. your choice? Well, I, I actually um, completely agree with you with Keith Barker. Um, I remember about four years ago now, I went up to on a university cricket tour to Leeds and I went up and did a day in York with my university cricket club. And we saw, I think it's the first county championship game at York since 1885, uh, Yorkshire, Warwickshire. And I saw Keith Barker then and I thought, I want to get that man in the Hampshire shirt. Uh, when I saw him, I was just really impressed. I think he got a free throw on the day, but... Uh, you know, like Amanda said, it's not all about the wickets, he, the way he was holding up an end. And I could see even early on that he was he has a good relationship with spinners, like you mentioned with Mason Crane. They really exploit the footmarks with him. So just an all-round gold standard first-class player. But it's got to be him for me. 41 championship wickets. And he was injured for the first four games. And people forget mm-hmm. that. So then coming back in and, and having the impact he did. And for me, that best moment, that's seven for 46 against Knotts. I highly doubt out in some ways we would have got as close as we did to the championship title without a contribution like that so I think we just owe him so much and I'm so happy for him because he's a great guy and he's really showing his worth now and he's the sort mm. of player we've needed in our bowling attack for years so I'm really happy and no slouch with the bat either so just really really he's doing well and as you said, yes seven for against Nottinghamshire Liverpool doesn't happen without what led up to it yeah. So blowing open the knots top order, I think, on the second morning mm. when it looked like we didn't potentially have a, that good a score ourselves on the board. Mm. Yeah. Um, beginning to set up what was, you know, a quite a comfortable victory in the end. But these things don't happen by themselves. It's uh, no. players taking the game by the scruff of the neck. And he's he regularly did that. And the Warwickshire game as well, mm. uh, yeah. because my, my friend is a Warwickshire member and she said there was much um, chuntering and disgruntlement by the Warwickshire members as uh, Barks was uh, whacking it around for some very valuable tail-end runs. And again, you know, talking about bonkers games, that Warwickshire game, I was supposed to be going up to see her actually on that Sunday, day one of the Warwickshire game. And um, it got delayed, didn't it, because whoever had covid you know, and you just think you look at that first inning score and it would be really easy to fall into the trap of, oh, here we go again. Hampshire really crap at batting, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you realise, oh, hang on a minute. By the end of day one or something, we've got a lead or whatever. It was, you know, and then you think if this goes to day three, but, it, you know, who knew it actually went to day four in the end. But, um, yeah. Well, I thought they'd get two days off. The, the... Yeah. the way it was going on the first day. But again, Keith Barker, you know, his his runs were really valuable. And again, mm. I know people say, well, it shouldn't be down to the lower order batsman. It should be down to the bowlers to save us with the bat. But actually, if you look at when we play county cricket at the arse end of the season, you know, April and September, that's what happens everywhere. Mm. Yeah. The Surrey uh, game, you know, who wants to be at a Surrey ball fest with, you know, 400 and 500... Mm. You know, who wants to watch that? It's the low-scoring games that are the most exciting. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's one of the things that, you know, I tweet about this semi-regularly during the season that, you know, as soon as we collapse, you know, the same tweets come through. And it's frustrating to read, but it's even more frustrating. Yes, I'm annoyed with the batting, but I go and look at every other scorecard. Mm. And apart from the oval, where they're 600... 50 against 650 yeah everyone everywhere is getting rolled out for a hundred on so it's an english problem rather than just being a hampshire problem and everyone's like i'll sign some batsmen and i've asked them to give me some names of people they'd like Mm. to see come to the club and nobody can really come up with anyone that guarantees it and i listened back to my end of season podcast from three years ago we were pretty much talking about the same thing back then and it's yeah it's a hard one to solve and i think what you're seeing now is that if a batsman's like decent and they play for sussex perhaps or leicestershire then we'd probably be in with a good chance of signing them. 
because we can sell the Aegeus Bowl, we can sell that we almost won two, three trophies last season and we think you're the missing link to win us that final trophy. We can sell that. But if somebody's decent and they're playing for Yorkshire, Warwickshire, Lancashire, Surrey, then we probably won't be able to wave a checkbook and say, oh, come to Hampshire. Mm. So it's very, very hard for Hampshire to do that. We'll, we'll come Nick back. Nick Dobbins has gone all right, though. Yeah, and it, but at the same time with him, if you think he arrived in July, made a really, really positive impact. But his yeah. numbers in September, you can see yeah. that he struggled a bit, and he wasn't the only mm. one. And it's no, they always say cricket's a batsman's game, but if you're a county championship player uh, in September, then it's a bowler's game, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like the prime example I would say on this is. Ian Holland, look at the group stages of the before the divisional stage of County Champ. He was our leading run scorer mm. and he looked the best I've ever seen him. But unfortunately for him, he floundered when he got into the divisional section. Now, is that necessarily a him problem or is it also endemic of other batsmen? And I think it is the latter because he had an amazing first half of the season, but every other batsman was seeming to have an yeah. issue as well. So, and yeah. Again, somebody spoke to me after we were, we were talking, we were having a point after the Liverpool game and somebody had pointed out that Ian Holland in previous seasons had also tailed off in September that it wasn't just this year that um, he'd struggled in September so th- there's problems there should we talk about white ball cricket who, who our favourite or best player was this year uh, Amanda do you want to go first with that well, yeah, I've got a confession to make. The Royal London competition completely passed me by, even though my beloved Carl Abbott was captain. Um, I didn't catch any of the games at all. And I don't know why. It wasn't deliberate. It's just life. It's a life thing, a work thing, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I didn't actually catch any of that. But I know that it was kind of billed as a development competition. And um, I think that some of the names that we saw coming through for Hampshire were really um, exciting. You know, some of the performances... We've already mentioned, you know, like Tom Prest, Scott Curry, people like that. It just looked really quite exciting. And the blast I didn't catch a lot of apart from finals day and the quarterfinals <laughs> and a couple of other bits and pieces. I've been really poor in white ball for Hampshire this year. Sorry, everybody. I've been a bad fan. But I think, you know, Joe Weatherly, again, you know, looked like he had a really good season. As say, I've mentioned, you know, Tom Prest, like George said, you know, we owe finals day to Tom Prest really for scoring his 30 or 40 or whatever it was that looked nothing but actually was the what made the difference um, in the quarterfinal so I don't really have a strong opinion apart from I guess you know what I saw on finals day Joe Weatherly looked to cut up everybody else with the bat yeah what what do you reckon George well, firstly, uh, being a recent graduate, I was able to watch more of the One Day Cup than uh, than Amanda was. So I went to every home game of the One Day Cup. Um, I was really impressed by young John Turner, JT, as they affectionately mm-hmm. call him. He had his steady comp. I think it was seven wickets in six games, but yeah, just a, a real punishing line um, and some really nice pace when he wanted generating off the ball which isn't always easy to do at the bowl um and i i was just very impressed by his temperament as well he interacted with the members and and, and seemed to really care about the club and buying into the philosophy of the club which it's more of an off the field thing but i was just very impressed by him as a as a young lad for me completely agree amanda it's got to be joe everly I think he averaged 41 nearly uh, in the blast and 410 runs at that strike rate of over 140. So just really impressive. I think with him, the boys suddenly become the man finally with with, with he's grown into his position and I see him as a kind of leading light now and what he did on finals day takes courage and leadership and that 71 was was a joy to behold and, and it gave us a chance and I think he was tired of this stupid criticism that people were giving him on Twitter which is isn't very noteworthy for him and, and he, he proved the doubt is wrong this season so yeah he, he's become a real leader and it's great to see. Yeah, I just didn't see this coming with Joe, I'll be honest, because a few years ago, again, I did a podcast with a guy called Dan Weston, who's like a big cricket analytic person, and he actually helps teams with their recruitment because he says, oh, you need this guy because he strikes at this many balls per over and his dot ball percentage is low and so on. And he wasn't 
particularly strong on Joe's boundary hitting percentages at that time. And his feeling was that generally, whatever you're striking at when you're about 20, 21 is actually how you will probably go for the rest of his career. Mm. So for him to step up in the way he did, so the innings at Glamorgan, where you just think, well, where has that come from? And I was very worried about him because he did struggle in the championship this year. He, he only averaged 18, sadly. But because of the transformation that he's made in the white ball formats, both 50 over and especially T20, then he's cemented his place at the club for a few years, whereas you mm. might have to sort of say, well, it's not really working for you, Joe. You know, that, that could have been his time up. But because he's found that extra gear and that, extra strings to his bow then he's a serious player so I think on his improvement alone then he would have to be my white ball player of the year yeah anyone else sort of close or honourable mentions obviously you mentioned John Turner it was nice to see him I saw him a couple of games young Brad Wheel you know for the um, course final and I think he had a good um, I don't want to swear but 100 um <laughs> Yeah, he, he, I think in that he, look, he did look decent. Yeah, I'm not massively fan of that format, but no, but he, you know, so he, he I think, yeah, so I think Brad Will seems to have, you know, come on as well. And I say that the performance in the um, that final over he bowls in the quarterfinal was just like, you know, nerves of steel. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I think I was what just shout, shouting like mad at Edgbaston in the semi just to say, look. Close it out, Brad. Close it out. You, <laughs> you know, do yeah. what you did at Trent Bridge. And yeah. Unfortunately, we went to the well one too many times and he was unable to there. But he'll 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 continue improving. He's just about to represent Scotland in the T20 World Cup, and that will be great for him. Mm. Um, and yeah, as much as we don't want to talk about the hundred too much, he did really in the back end of that comp on some of those big television games really stand up and perform so I think great signs of the future would, would yeah I don't know if you were at Hove or down at Union Hove back when there was a game about four or five years ago where he defended seven off the last over against yeah. Ross Taylor and again that was like where you thought oh he's arrived and then it's been a bit of a delay to get to this season but now it's like more often than not, you know you throw the ball to him at the death he's going to deliver and unfortunately mm. he wasn't going to he didn't on finals day, but that is T20 cricket. The best death bowlers in the world get get smashed, go out the park in those situations. So you can't blame him for anything there. Well, I certainly think we built our early white ball success sort of a decade ago on Chris Wood being that sort of guy near the back end. He was competent. Uh, I know he's getting older now and it didn't work out for him on finals day, but Brad Wheel is showing those sort of early Wood signs of 2010, 11, 12 which really um, makes me feel quite positive about having that in our arsenal is only going to be good for the club yeah. in those crunch moments. So we've got at least eight overs of spin as well with Crane and Dawson, which is what was making a big difference to squeeze in the middle overs and things like that. So enjoyable season. So I think we're sort of more towards Joe Weverly as perhaps player of the season, I think, if we're in agreement. But... Yeah, our honourable mentions are for Brad Will and John Turner as well. Okay, so we were discussing batting as well. And that potentially leads to, to the final question is that if we were looking ahead to 2022, what would be on your shopping list if you were Rod Bransgrove to bring to the club? Do you feel actually what we've got is okay and you wouldn't be looking to change much or what players have you perhaps got your eye on or you haven't necessarily got your eye on a player but you've thought about a position that we'd want to consider strengthening well I never have any particularly strong feelings about transfers whatever you want to call it overseas players I often get a bit surprised well I'm, I suppose I'm grateful that it's not going to be um a freedie yet again <laughs> lesson um I think he's done his time now with us but I'm I don't really have any strong feelings about it I'm always surprised or shocked about who we've signed as an overseas player for example and I you know I was thinking about what we might want for the future but actually we've got an Irene Donald to come back from injury mm. we've also just won the second 11 competition mm. haven't we so surely that means we've got a crop of upcoming players that need to be given a chance 
We've also talked about our sort of breakthrough stars already, you know, some young names, you know, some names that I'd never heard of before. I didn't even know they were anything to do with Hampshire, um, you know, until you saw them on the team sheet. So I don't know. Can't we just be one of those clubs for a year that just sticks with what we've got? But have a bass back as well, please. Okay. <laughs> he's great. So if, if we're having is two overseas uh, players allowed, uh, I'm fairly sure Kyle Abbott's got another year on his contract. So he's penciled in or inked in as uh, one of those. And if you were to get another overseas, you'd go for a bass again. And I think- Yeah, even just for his, like, you know, his performance on one leg at that Warwickshire game, um, <laughs> you know, where he just kept going and kept going and apparently, by all accounts, just did not want to give up the ball, just kept mm. bowling even though he could hardly walk. In, my, in fact, my friend was messaging me to say, he can barely walk in between <laughs> overs, <laughs> but he's still going. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks... I mean, he, he, you know, what an amazing bowler, you know, and Abbas and Abbott, apart from the, the trouble it gives Kevin James on commentary to have to say those two names <laughs> in the same kind of passage of play, that's quite amusing. But yeah, you know, really strong performer. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'll be shocked and there'll be a really good batter and it'll be the best batter ever. And I'll be like, wow, why did I not think of him? <laughs> We're so lucky. But can't we just be one of those teams that sticks with what they've got for now? Yeah, it's a good point, that, because if we go for a bass again, I'd be more than happy with that, alongside Kyle Abbott, that we'd always be in the chance of winning games, even if the batting doesn't quite fire, mm. that we'd have an attack of Abbott, Abbott, Wheel and Barker more often than not, then you're going to win games of cricket, even if you don't always score the runs that you would like. And it's a great point about Donald, that he will, if he does come back, he will feel like a new yeah. signing. Because mm. sadly, we've missed him for over two years now. So I'm really keen to see him because he's such a talent and he would completely transform the white ball team, make us that more dynamic, if you like. And also it gives that dynamism to the, the red ball side as well. So, yeah, great point about Donald. Be great to see him back. George, what would be your choices? Where are you thinking? Anyone stand out for you or... I mean, firstly, I just think both your points about Donald are spot on because I think he might end up filling the void that we've sort of had with Northeast leaving, especially in more of a Red Bull sense, slotting into that um, sort of higher, lower top order, higher middle order. Um, and I think he just needs one good season just to get back in the rhythm, which hopefully be next year. Um, in terms of signings, I was really pleased with the signing of Ross Whiteley. And I thought that that was a massive signal of intent from us, which I think also does show that we are seen as a big club now um, because I know that he tried to sign for Sussex, but Sussex is having a bit of a mass exodus of players at the moment. I think that's the issue with the 100. It's becoming a bit of haves or have-nots, which is sad, but I guess it is what it is. And we're luckily one of the haves because we've got a 100 test match ground and that does allure people in. You know, Whiteley played for the Southern Brave before us, so it's probably a natural progression. Uh, but we've been missing that sort of, like you said, a, a dynamic sort of swashbuckling batsman in the top order for White Ball is really good for us. So now that that's there, I kind of are quite confident that we can test that out and don't need any new signings in that area for, for White Ball. I think the seamer, that Red Bull seamer, is the big question. If a bass comes back, brilliant. Uh, because absolute game changer. But if not, I'd like us to start having a bit of a hunt because it's just quite crucial to winning games of cricket is if you have a good bowling attack, especially when you're playing right at the dross end of the seasons. The bowling attack is what reigns supreme, so that'll be really... uh, But would you say, though, because I've been sort of, again, talking to a few people in the background about that maybe we'd be better looking for an overseas batsman because if we have Abbott and we have Barker, we have Wheel, we've got Dawson with spin, and hopefully on what Crane showed in recent games and at Liverpool, mm. a bit more faith will be shown in Mason Crane in future, that you don't need a second overseas bowler and that we try and find an experienced test batsman to strengthen our batting, and that might give us the extra 20, 30 runs that, would have done the job at Liverpool. 
But we've not really ever been able to find somebody that can hang around for the whole season, have we? Exactly. So we've had, so had Amla, who was amazing. Rahane as well. We, we had. Yeah, Jinx was Jinx was here. But again, they've been here when they've been playing a test match tour. So they've kind of tagged the county experience onto the test match programme, mm-hmm. which is fine. I get why they would do that. But we, if we want somebody, we want them for the whole season, don't we? And so then it's about, I, I don't know, they must have backroom staff checking who's on tour, who's available. Unless you know, it's uh, a way perhaps of you get somebody in for the first half of the summer and then you kind of take a view of who would come in for the second half. Because I think from what I understand, the Bass came in for the first half. And then if we'd have been in Division 2 or 3, then we wouldn't have bothered to sign him. But I think they paid the money because they felt that was what was going to deliver the title. And that might have been part of the deal anyway, for all we know, you know, incremental kind of um, contracts around, you know, you're here definitely for this amount and we get, you know, we've got a clause to get you back or extra bonus or whatever. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Um yeah, I see what you're saying. And we and I know we really want to win. We really want to win the championship, but we also want it to be sustainable. So we don't just want to have a, an amazing year because of one person. We want it to be a team performance, don't we? So all these building blocks about your second eleven and your 50 over development comp and your, you know, whatever, that's it's it's all building towards strengthening your first team, isn't it? So just parachuting somebody in. I mean, you know, part of the reason why I love Kyle Abbott is um, one of the many reasons I love him is because I know he's played for lots of different teams, but he's he appears to be here for the long haul and he's made mm. a commitment. And you can see by the way he behaves. I mean, George has talked about off-field behaviour and how, you know, how impressed you were with John Turner. You know, Kyle Abbott, that you can see the way he behaves with some of the bowlers, the encouragement he gives. He's not just here to perform. He's here to mentor and he's probably got some kind of coaching element to his deal as well, maybe. So you want the same with the batter. You don't just want somebody to come and perform and show off and then disappear. You want it to be building up your team to make it sustainable, don't you? You do, yeah. And it's one of those where you kind of got to think very carefully about who you bring in because it is a thing of you can upset the balance. But unfortunately, the batsmen we have haven't quite delivered the runs that they should have. And again, whilst it is a problem of when the cricket's played and it's not a problem that's unique to Hampshire, but they need to find a way to deal with it. As in, unfortunately, the cricket or four-day cricket is going to be in April, May and September for for probably forever. So these players have to find a way of dealing with that, I think, rather than just going, oh, well, I've got no chance, nicking off and then hope that we've got the bowling to win us some games. It's like they do need to take a bit more responsibility and step up in those ways. Yeah, but I mean, Sam Northeast didn't work out, did he? And, and you know, one can only guess at what was going on behind the scenes there. Bad chemistry, I guess you can put it down to not Possibly, quite working out. Yeah. Yeah, you know. we can't be sure. It's always a risk bringing anyone in, I think, because saying maybe we have got the people in the second 11 ready to step up. I, th- I think we got the batsmen because at various points they have shown they can do it, but it's just, mm. we just need that bit more consistency. I think if the opportunity is there, and even if it is only six games or something like that, but it's a real, real top-class batter, then you you take the opportunity to have him with you and you sign him. Whereas yeah, if I, it's somebody fairly ordinary, then we might as well just promote somebody from the second 11 or keep the faith with what we've got. That's how I would see it. I think as well, with, with the way the scheduling is going to work, we're not going to go back to two divisions until at least 2023 at the earliest. So we're pretty sure we're going to stick with this format for next year, which means as much as I understand you don't want to parachute someone into break team cohesion, it kind of is quite key because you're only going to know what sort of season you're going to embark on by about June when you find out if you're going to be in Div 1, Div 2, Div 3. And I think that's where it aids the conversation if you comes in. If we're thinking logically about this, South Africa are over for a free match mm. 
Test Series next year, I'd quite like to see Markram back in, in a shirt or someone like a, a, a de Kock maybe who was in at the Brave. I know that's quite high level, but if Markram came, he made a big impact before the World Cup in 2019. Someone like that um, would, would be a big thing. Uh, but there's also, there is, I think, if we are relying on scheduling and players coming over, maybe it's better to look at top level players from Test Nations who aren't playing as much during the summer. So I've always had a rogue one that I've been pushing for for many years. And I know from some sources at the club that we are very close to signing him in 2019. And that's Shaki Malassan, the Bangladesh captain. Um, and I think someone like him, uh, Bangladesh, they don't play much cricket in the summer. Winter, they, they're like New Zealand. They play about five or six tests less than the average. So... Someone like him, he's, he's an extra spinner for the bowl, but a great batsman coming in at four or five. The sort of position where players like Gubbings and also was sort of not quite fired for us so far. He'd, he'd bolster us there. Also, the Bangladesh fielding coach is legend Neil McKenzie. So I think he'd have someone who could maybe give a little word to come over. But someone like that, he's kind of rogue in terms of not international top level star, a realistic signing, but someone who could add sort of with bat and ball something a little bit different mm. I think is what we should be looking for to be realistic but I certainly think we've got the pulling power as a club now to do that we've just got to use a bit of nouse and logic yeah great thoughts well what I think we'll do is we've we've had a really good discussion there about the season so we'll wrap it up now and bring that to a close thank you very much George Amanda for your time this evening and uh, reliving some of the best mo and the worst moments of the season and a good discussion about the best players and uh, what perhaps we want to see happen next year. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed talking to George and Amanda. Hopefully you guys have joined it as well. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, I loved it. One of the best nights of my year so far. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's great news. Hopefully we'll be back with you soon. We'll work out some things that we want to perhaps talk about and hopefully I'll be able to bring you podcasts a bit more regularly than uh, I have done in the past 18 months or so so it'd be nice to have this as a more regular thing but on that note I'll leave you to it and I will speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.